Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler David. I'm one of the preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we just finished our summer preaching series, and so I'm very thankful for those men, but I'm glad they're gone. I'm ready to preach. Uh, miss being with you guys. If you have a Bible, go and open, open up to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we'll be there in a second. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. All the text will be on the screen behind me throughout the sermon. I do not think, I don't think that it is an exaggeration at all to say that one of the most prominent narratives in our culture today is the narrative of being accepted for who you are. I don't think I'm exaggerating at all when I say the most celebrated stories in our culture right now by us in this room right now are those stories where someone is totally transparent about who they are. Even if it may hurt other people, they're totally transparent, or hurt them. They're totally transparent about who they are, and then we celebrate people accepting and blessing them for it. It's one of the most prominent, celebrated stories in our culture today. Now, even as I'm saying, and I'm sure there are certain stories coming to mind where you're thinking about, okay, that story, this story. Now, here's what I want to do. I'm, I don't want to comment on those stories. I don't want us to assess those stories together. I don't want to do that. What I want to do is for us to think about what do we share in common with that story? Even stories you disagree with, what do you share in common with that story? Because every person in this room, here's what you share in common with every story of people, of us celebrating someone for being transparent and being acceptable and blessed. The thing that every person in this room, every one of you, without exception, you share that desire to want to be accepted for who you actually are. Every person in this room wants to be respected and blessed for who they actually are. You have this internal, constant desire for acceptance, respect, and blessing. Now, the particular aspect of yourself, of your person, that you really want to be respected, you really want to be accepted, you really want to be blessed, it's going to change from person to person. I see that. But nobody in this room, none of you want to pretend you're someone you're not so you can be accepted. None of you want to pretend to be somebody you're not so you'll be respected and blessed. None of us want to do that. All of us want to be known for who you actually are without pretending, without faking, without a mask, without any pretense, and be who you are and be accepted and be respected and be blessed. Everyone in this room wants that. Every single one of us. None of us want to keep pretending. Pretending is exhausting. Pretending is unsustainable. Pretending is miserable because when you pretend, in order to be accepted, in order to be blessed, here's what you're saying. You're saying the real me could never be blessed, could never be accepted, could never be respected. That's what you're saying. That's why you're pretending and we've all done it. We've all pretended to be somebody we're not in order to gain those things. Some of you are probably doing it right now. You're in relationships pretending. You're at church pretending. And you're pretending in order to gain those things that you're really after. And to pretend is a joyless state. It really, really is. It's miserable. And let me give you a tangible exa example of the joylessness of pretending someone you're not. A couple years ago, I went to lunch with some friends of mine at the Austin Stone who shall remain nameless. Went to lunch, and there were a couple of us there, and one of the guys there, he's an evangelist. He's a natural evangelist, both for Jesus and for everything else he enjoys. You know these types of people. It's not enough for them to enjoy their thing, you have to enjoy their thing, okay? 
And so we order our food and we go to get drinks. We go to get drinks and we're filling up our cups and the evangelist, I'll never forget, he tries apricot mango tea. He drinks, he goes, oh, that is so good. Tyler, you gotta try this, it's the jam, try it now. Okay, aggressive about the tea. I, I take some of the apricot mango tea, I taste it, and as is my custom, I'm honest, I tell him, matter of factly, that's terrible, I never wanna taste it ever again, okay? Now, he's an evangelist. He's an evangelist, unnerved by it. He goes, okay, you obviously are one of the chosen, moving along to the next one, you, you're next. So the next person with us, the guy, another friend of ours from the stone, he comes up and the guy says, you have got to try this tea. It's the best. He tries the tea, he likes it. He goes, man, that's really good, I really like that. I go, okay, you're dumb, but whatever. You like that tea, that's fine for dumb people, okay? He drinks the tea, whatever. We go to lunch. Throughout the lunch, we don't bring the tea up ever again. That'd be weird. Hey, how's your tea? That's a weird thing to say in a lunch, okay? I know how the tea is. It's terrible. I know I already tasted it. We don't bring it up, but he keeps bringing up, the guy who tried it and liked it, he keeps bringing up and saying, man, tea's really good. 20 minutes later, that tea, real good. Okay, so I'm like, okay, whatever, he likes the tea. At the end of the lunch, the evangelist was in a different car. He gets in the car, he leaves. Me and the other guy, we go to get refills. Well, I get my normal tea, and all of a sudden I see him getting Coke, I'm like, you said you love the tea. And so I looked at him and go, hey, I thought you liked the tea. Why aren't you getting any more? He looks at me. He pauses for like two seconds too long. He says, man, sometimes I lie. I was like, sometimes you lie. <laughs> Duly noted. Not talking to you, believing you ever again. I go, what do you mean sometimes you lie? He goes, I hated the tea. Terrible. Disgusting. Hated every second of it. I'm like... You kept telling us how much you love the tea, because I know I hate it every second. I go, why'd you do that? And it's because he wanted to be accepted by the evangelist guy. It was like impulse form. He was so used to doing that in so many areas of his life that, hey, you like the tea? Love the tea. But he didn't even think about it. He hated it. And so he told me that, and I thought, that's a crazy thing to do. I said, I'm sure if you're willing to drink gross tea for an hour and a half and see how good it is, I'm sure there are other things you've done that are even more ridiculous. And I asked him, I go, what's the most ridiculous thing you've ever done in order to get that acceptance, that approval? He said he's allergic to cats. One time he was at someone's house, with had like six cats, which is already an issue. They had six cats. <laughs> Sorry, if you have six cats, we can talk afterwards, I don't know. But they had six cats. Six cats. He's allergic. And, he, and they're like, hey, here my cats. He goes, oh, I love cats. He's playing with them, rubbing them on his face. Literally, he's like, oh, I love them. And he's like, I felt miserable. I think he had to like get a shot afterwards. Like it was... But he just did it out of impulse. He wants to be accepted. Now, you may not have rubbed a cat on your face before, but you have pretended to be someone you're not. And it's miserable. It's a silly illustration, but it shows you that's really what you're doing. You may not have the immediate consequences of drinking gross tea, but you have the consequences of knowing deep down they don't know who I am. That's the only reason they accept me. And that's how strong the desire is. Your desire to be accepted, respected, and blessed is so strong, you'll pretend to get it. You'll fake for years to get it. You'll strive and work yourself to the bone to get it. You'll do whatever it takes to be accepted, respected, and blessed. And so when you look at the stories of our culture, whether they're right, whether they're wrong, the complicated nature of them, that's not what this is about. 
Look at those stories and you can understand how freeing it is, even if it's something unhealthy or dysfunctional, how freeing it is for someone to be known for who they are and be accepted. You may not agree with what they're wanting to be accepted, but you can relate to the desire. And the reason all of you can relate to the desire because it's hardwired into humanity. It's put there by God. Every story you see that's celebrating someone being transparent and honest and being accepted is displaying something about what it means to be an image bearer. Every person, whether they know Jesus or not, believe in him or not, they were made by God and for God, and God placed within them this desire, this longing to be good, acceptable, and to hear God speak blessing over them. You're made for it. I'm made for it. You're made to be so good and so pleasing and so acceptable to God that when he sees you, he speaks of love and favor and honor and respect and blessing over you. You're made for it. When you read the creation account in Genesis 1, that's what you see. You see God creating everything. And how, when God creates everything in this Genesis 1 poem, he creates everything. You, you kind of sense this rhythm to it, these common refrains in it. It says, God made this, and God made this, and God saw that it was good. God made this, and God made this, and he saw that it was good. And God made this, and God made this, and he saw that it was good. It's this common theme throughout. What you, the writer's telling us is that God made everything good. And he gets the last day, he's creating things, and he creates humanity, the pinnacle of this good creation. And hum, human beings are so good and so pleasing and so acceptable to God that after he makes them, and the writer's writing this poem, God blesses them and speaks over them. Look at Genesis 1, 27 and 28. 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them. And God blessed them, and God said to them. Human beings in this text were made so acceptable so good, so pleasing that when God sees Adam and Eve, he wants to bless them. It's a natural response of his to his good creation. He wants to bless them and tell them, here's my instruction, here's my plan, here's my love, here's my provision, here's everything I have for you. He blessed them and he spoke to them. You were made. You were made to be good before God and to hear him speak those things over you. Over you. That's why you have those desires in you. They're there to be met in hearing him speak them over you. But you and I both know, you and I both know that our experience, experience tells us different. Our experience is different than having all these needs of wanting to be accepted and respected and blessed and how always having them met by God, you and I both know there's something broken in that relationship because those needs often go unmet. See, God spoke blessing over you, over us, over humanity because we were good, but when we chose another voice, everything unraveled. We chose another voice to listen to, and everything unraveled. See, Satan came to Adam and Eve, and he tempted them. And when you read Genesis 3, it's really interesting how the idea of goodness comes into it, because he tempts them by saying, you'll be able to know good. He tells them, you'll be able to distinguish. You don't need God to know what's good and acceptable and right. You just need yourselves. And so what Adam and Eve were saying, they weren't disagreeing with God that certain things were acceptable, that certain people were right and good and true before him. They just wanted to be the ones who decided what it was. 
They wanted the authority. And they bought the lie that they would be even better if they forged their own identity. They forged their own identity. So they disobeyed God. They ate of the tree that he told them not to. And this first act of treason, this first act of rejection, it corrupts everything about you and about me. It corrupts everything about us. See, humanity is no longer good before God now. We offended him. We hurt him. He's pure and perfect and holy. And he's been hurt. He's been wrong. He's been, been offended. So we're no longer good before him. The relationship has been broken and severed. And so what happens? When God speaks to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, he doesn't speak blessing anymore. He speaks judgment. They don't get blessing. They get judgment now because they sinned. See, he doesn't say, you're blessed. He says, here's the curse now on the earth. See, we were made to be with him acceptable and pleasing forever by his side. And what does he do? He drives them out of the garden. He drives them out of the garden. Genesis 3, 24. It says, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, an angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He drove out the man. Don't get it confused. Adam and Eve, they would have stayed if they could. They couldn't. God drove them out. You can't be here anymore with me. You're not good. You're not acceptable. You're not pleasing to me anymore. You're out. You're out. That's what happened in Genesis. And now every human being starts there. Every human being, all of you, me, we start outside the garden. All of us, the only life we've known growing up is life outside of the garden, outside of his presence, outside of being acceptable to him and good to him and hearing his voice of blessing over us. We've lost that. You weren't made to know life without the acceptance and the blessing of God, but now you're gonna. And now we do. We're born outside of the garden, outside of his presence, outside of that relationship. But here's what happened outside of the garden. Outside the garden, you and I lost God, but we didn't lose the desires he gave us. We lost God, but we didn't lose the desires he gave us. We didn't lose the desire to worship. We didn't lose the desire for protection. We didn't lose the desire for love. We didn't lose any of the desires to want to be accepted, respected, and blessed. No, those desires in you and in me are as strong as they've ever been. We didn't lose the desires. We just lost the only one who could actually satisfy them, who could actually quench our thirst for respect and acceptance. We lost him. And to make matters even worse, not only did we lose the only one that our desires are made for, now we don't even want the one our desires are made for. Now we don't even want to be around him. We don't want him anymore. We just want to use his stuff. God, I don't want you. I want to use your stuff for acceptance and respect and blessing. See, we want to go to his creation and not him. So this is why we will go to relationships for acceptance. We'll get married for acceptance. We will drive ourselves and work hour upon hour in our careers for respect. We will have children in order to feel like we're blessed. We'll even attend church to be affirmed. It is insane and crazy to me how much of the things that I do and you do 
that aren't about the thing itself, but about getting acceptance and respect and blessing through it. So often it's not about that relationship, it's about the acceptance you're not getting. See, you don't realize it's what you're after till you don't get it. That's why in a relationship you get incredibly insecure as soon as you're not accepted in the way you think you should be. Because it's not about the relationship, it's not about the job, it's not about the kids, it's about you getting the things you're really after. Your appetite for these things is insatiable. It keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. And here's what happens. You go to created things with these desires. Eventually, those created things are going to get crushed by your desires. Because your desire for acceptance is too needy and too strong and too ravenous for any person to keep up with it. No person could accept you enough to deal with that. There's no job and no respect that you could ever get that could keep up with your desire for it. Now eventually, every created thing, when it stands under those desires and it's under our neediness and our over and over and over and over and over and over again, eventually they crumble. Because you're hardwired for it. You can't help but want those things. And it was made to be satisfied by an infinitely good and kind and loving and beautiful and perfect and pure God. And so you go to all of his stuff and everything is crushed under the weight of your desires. Nothing can keep up. Now hear me, it will last for a little while. For a little while, that relationship, that job, those kids, this church, it'll meet the needs for a little while, but eventually it will buckle underneath the weight and the expectations you have. And that's really why, that's really why we're such fragile people. We're really fragile people because our hope can be turned into discouragement like that. As soon as that person who you thought would always accept you until they shame you, until you do something that hurts them and they just can't accept you. How quickly our confidence is plunged into insecurity as soon as the work we put into this thing does not get us the acclaim and respect we thought it would. Or we get it and we climb the ladder and we're at the top of it and there's nowhere else to go. Until that blessing runs out and all of a sudden that joy you thought would last forever is plunged into discontentment like that. We are fragile people because we're going to everything for acceptance, respect, and blessing that they can't give us. Because you're going to need it again in two and a half minutes. Are they going to approve of you again? It's just constant in you, constant in me. And that's what life is like outside of Jesus. You're just left to be driven by these desires, constantly going to wells that eventually run out. Hopping from thing to thing, person to person, until they run out. When the desires you have, you can't get rid of them. You're not supposed to. They're made to end on the infinite well of God. And our God is gracious and kind and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And God is not interested in giving you a little bit better version of your current self. He wants to give you everything you lost in the garden and even more. God is not thinking, I want to make a little bit better versions of people. He's thinking, I want to remake them totally. I want to take them back to what they lost. So he sent Jesus to be what you and I could never be. 
He sent him to be what we could never be. He sent him to be the new Adam of the new creation where he was always pleasing and acceptable before God. Hear me really clearly. Jesus did not come primarily to give you an example of a good life to follow. He came primarily to live the only good life and then give it to you. That's why he came. Not to say, here's the way forward, follow me and you'll get there. He says, here's the way forward, you never could get there, you never would get there, and I've already done it for you. That's what Jesus came to do. Because he was always pleasing and acceptable to God. That's one of the most important themes in the Gospels you see over and over again, especially in the Gospel of John, is how pleasing Jesus is to the Father. John 8.28, don't turn there, just look on the screen behind me. John 8.28, so Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus followed and honored every word of His Father. Jesus isn't saying, I'm taking all the credit. He's saying, I'm only doing what the Father tells me to. And he's with me, why? Because I always do the things pleasing to God. Always pleasing, always acceptable. So here's what happens. When the Father speaks about Jesus in the Gospels, because he's so good, because Christ is so perfect before him, he can't help but bless him. I'm gonna read to you the two times God the Father speaks in the Gospels, and it's gonna sound a lot like Genesis 1. It's going to sound a lot like Genesis 1 because God's going to see Christ and he's going to speak out loud and he's going to speak things of blessing and delight and pleasure over his son. I'll read you the, I'll read you the two times, Matthew three sixteen. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17, five. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus has all the acceptance, respect, and blessing we're longing for. He has it before God. And our sin keeps us from it. God the Father sees him and he says, I'm well pleased with him. It sounds like Genesis 1. He's so good and acceptable, he starts speaking and all of us were made to hear that. So instead of giving us a life to mimic, Jesus gives us a life already lived. Instead of giving you a life to mimic, he gives you a life he already lived out perfectly for you. And what he does is he swaps lives with us. He swaps lives with us. So we get his life and we get to be pleasing and acceptable before God. We get his perfect life of perfect obedience and we get to be pleasing before God. And Jesus gets our life and he's treated as what we are sinful, self-exalting people. See, we get to hear, because of Jesus, we get to hear nothing but blessing from him. We get promises like, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We get promises like, everything in your life, I'm working it together for good for those who love me or are called according to my purpose. Every single one of us in Christ get, I'll be with you till the end of the age. 
on the cross because of us. Jesus doesn't get a voice of blessing. He gets the voice of judgment. Jesus gets the voice of anger and wrath and fury that God rightly had for our sin, and it all goes on to Christ. All of it. We get a voice of blessing. He got a voice of judgment because we got his life and he got ours. This is the incredible truth in 2 Corinthians 5.21. You may have heard this verse before, but look at how incredible it is. For our sake, for our sake, he didn't need it, for our sake, he made him Christ to be sin. To stop, to be your sin. Your sin, my sin. Not general sin, your sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That term righteousness is really what we're talking about. Righteousness means to be acceptable before God. To be pleasing to God. To be good before God. And our longings for, to be good and acceptable and accepted are finally met in the finished work of Jesus. You don't become gradually more accepted as you prove yourself faithful. That's not how it works. It's given to you once and for all because of Christ. You don't work your way into his love and his acceptance. It's given to you right where you are for who you actually are. He accepts us before we ever change. The Christian life is not about working to be acceptable. It's about enjoying all the benefits of already being made acceptable. That's how the gospel works. But when it comes to this great gospel that we're now received by God, here's what happens. There are two primary ways we get it wrong. There's two primary ways we get this wrong, and both are very evident in our culture. You see them really clearly. There's a worldly way and a religious way we, that gets the gospel wrong. So follow, track with me. The worldly way, the worldly way says, if God really accepts people, then there can be no expectation of change. That's the worldly way. The worldly way says, if God really accepts somebody, he cannot ask them to change or tell them to change. That's the worldly way. The religious way says God only accepts people once they change, once they prove they're different. And both of these ways deceive us, both of these ways are wrong, and both of these ways belittle Christ. Both of them do. So let's look at both really quickly. The worldly way, let's look at the worldly way. The worldly way associates true acceptance with the absence of change. The worldly way of understanding says, no, to be truly accepted means you accept everything about me. Nothing can be wrong. There's two options in the worldly way, total acceptance or total rejection. There's no in between. That's what the worldly way says. The worldly way says that if for grace to be really grace means you can't tell someone they're also wrong. They can't coexist. Now, the worldly way has some truth in it. This is why deception happens most with things that have some truth in it. The worldly way has some truth in it. They look at, the worldly way looks at the Gospels and sees Jesus around broken people who no one wants to hang out with, who are clearly in rebellion against God, and Jesus meets them where they are. And Jesus eats meals with them, and Jesus loves them. And these are true, incredible things about Christ that he meets with people who no one else wants to meet with. 
But if that's the only part of Jesus you talk about or represent, you're misrepresenting him. Because Jesus would for sure hang out with the broken of the broken. He'd hang out with the outcasts and the ostracized and those who were in sin against God. He'd eat with them. He'd teach them. He'd laugh with them. He'd love them and heal them. But then he'd also tell them to kill their sin. And then he'd also tell them to give money to the poor. And he'd also tell them, die for me. He'd tell them, if you really are going to follow me, you've got to die to self and follow me. He'd call, he'd meet them where they were, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't keep them where they were. So it's true, that happens. Jesus meets them where they are, but he doesn't leave them there. He doesn't leave them there. And the worldly way thinks, the worldly way thinks by emphasizing that God doesn't want you to change, that they're emphasizing his love when really they're undermining it undermining his love because it's forgetting the fact that we were so far from God and bad before him. Listen, Jesus could not teach us back to God. He couldn't have enough meals with you where that would slowly work you back to God. No, he had to die for us. That's how bad we were. Jesus could eat with the sinners and the outcasts forever and that would never make them right and good before God again. He had to die. The gospel of Jesus dying for us and his grace for us based on nothing we've done is not saying how much and how little we need to change. It's not a testimony to how little we need to change. It's a testimony to how great his love is for people who desperately need to change. It doesn't speak to just how inherently amazing you are as a person. It speaks to how precious and pure and powerful Jesus is that if he died for you, even the worst version of you is saved before God. That's what it speaks of. It speaks to the incredible nature of God, not of us. Remember, Jesus accepts you before you ever change, but he does so so that he can change you. Jesus never meets anyone in the Gospels and says, where you are is fine, just leave me alone, we'll be good. He always says, I'm right here where you are in your worst moment, and I have somewhere I want to take you. He meets you where you are, accepts you for who you are so that he can change you. So the worldly way is wrong in that way. But then there's the religious way, and the religious way actually is probably more deceitful and more deceptive. The religious way says that you're truly accepted once you've changed. You're truly accepted once you've proven you've changed. So once again, with any kind of lie, it's deceiving when there's a little bit of truth in it. So the religious way is right in that the religious way and religious people recognize that God tells people to change, that Jesus calls people out and tells them to follow him. The religious way is right in that God is not content on keeping people where they are forever. And so, so long as you like you, then God likes you and he doesn't care about changing you. It's right in that way, but here's where it gets it wrong. The religious way says that you don't really know you're accepted until you've changed. That anytime you fail, anytime you're not changing like you're supposed to, anytime who you actually are is not in line with who God is, then who, your acceptance is up in the air. Then your acceptance before God and your goodness before him is questionable. 
And you can see this really clearly because when you fail, when you sin in this religious way of thinking, there's not compassion and tenderness and love for you. Typically, there's very strict, clear instructions on what you must do if you're going to be sure you're accepted again. That's how the religious way works. It's not enough for Jesus to die. You got to beat yourself up for it too. You got to make sure to do everything faithfully too. That's the only way you can really know. And the truth is about the religious way, the only way for someone to stay on the religious way and to really be confident in it, because we fail God so often. If you look at all that God's commanded us to do, you fail him all the time, every day, without fail. It's not that you have some bad days. Before Christ, you have all bad days, all of them. There's not a moment you honor him. And even when you do come to Christ, you realize how many of the good things you do are for wrong reasons. So you fail him so often, so how could you keep up this facade that you somehow are upholding your end of the bargain? You change the standards of God. What you do is, the way the religious way works, is now the things that you're good at all of a sudden are the things God values most. Isn't that nice? All of a sudden the things that you really value are the things God really values... Your sweet spots are his sweet spots. And so let me give you an example of that. This, this, I'm not just belittling this type of person, but I'm saying give an example of a type of person. Let's say you're very disciplined. You're very driven by nature. And so in the religious economy, here's what you'll do. You will have very high standards of performance for yourself and also for everyone around you. High standards of performance. So you will feel really guilty when you lack self-control. Really guilty when you commit that sin that you're like, that's the really bad one and I hate that one. But usually in the religious way, people don't really repent of bitterness a lot. In the religious way, people don't really confess and say, you know what, I'm wrong for having such a critical attitude of other people. No, I, I, I need to repent and confess that I'm wrong for how joyless I've been. No, in the religious way, what you tend to do is say, those things are are optional but not essential. What's essential is read your Bible every day, but joy, not so much. But tenderheartedness, I mean, that'd be good if they weren't such a sinner. You have to change the rules of the game. You have to make it to where God values the things you're good at and pretty much forget and ignore the things you fail at often. And that's just the, the driven type people. I could use, do it for other types of people as well, but what you do is you have to shift the economy because you fail God too much. But the glory of the gospel is that before you ever changed, before you ever read your Bible, ever attended a service, that's when Christ died for you. The glory of the gospel, the glory of the gospel is that God gave you his son. And the glory of the gospel is that you are a terrible investment. I thought about this other week. I was on vacation and I was praying and I was wrestling through my own sin. And I remember I, I prayed this to God. And it's a wrong prayer, so let me preface that. Let me preface that. I pray, God, I, I love Jesus. I want to respond to him well. God, I want to be a good return on your investment. It's like as if, as if God's a bank teller. Got it, duly noted. And as I said that, kind of revealed my heart, it revealed where I was, where I really thought I could mimic and respond appropriately to God's love. And this image kind of came into my mind, this kind of word picture came into my mind, 
And I knew it was right. I knew that was the spirit of my, my prayer was stupid. And the imagery was, Tyler, you're a money pit. That's who we are. You are a terrible investment of God's son. And it tells you how great and generous our God is. Because he didn't invest in you because you were a good investment. He invested in you precisely because you were such a bad one. He gave you the richest thing he could ever give his very son to prove he lacks nothing. To prove how gracious and generous he is because you're never going to equal or reciprocate that back. And I was blown away. Praise God, I'm a bad investment. That's what I started to pray. I got a terrible ROI. That's who I am. It was so refreshing to me to know that's the glory of the gospel, not that you are a great idea to invest in, but because, precisely because you're not, that's how gracious God is. That is the gospel. So here's my question for you. Which way deceives you the most? Which way? The worldly way, the religious way, which way do you tend to counsel other people? Like, God, yeah, you could change, don't really worry about that, God doesn't really care, or you better change, and if you don't, I don't know. Which way do you counsel people? Now, there's multiple ways you can kind of diagnose people. Now, here's the thing. Don't think about, man, they're really the religious way. Not them, you, okay? Not your spouse, you. Not your roommate, you. Which way do you err? A good way to kind of diagnose this is, which of the, the ways, the worldly way, the religious way, which way, when it's promoted as true, makes you the most angry? Like, when the religious way is presented to someone as true, like, you have to work really hard and be really disciplined, and if you don't do that, then I'm not sure about you. Does that make you angry? Well, then that means you're probably worldly. That's probably the area you tend to err on. Or if you get really frustrated when you see people telling people, don't change, it doesn't matter, God just loves you and accepts you and has grace. When you hear that, do you get really angry? You're probably more religious. But let me tell you what I found. We're both. We're both. It just depends on the day and on the area you're talking about. What I find in areas where I feel really, now let me say, feel strong. Not actually strong, but feel strong and competent. I want justice, fairness. I'm weak and sinful. Grace, mercy for me and for everybody. That's how it feels. I'm telling you, that's how self-serving you are. If it's an area that someone else is failing in that you feel strong in, you're like, man, I really need to give them some truth. It's true. But if it's an area you're weak in and you fail in, you're like, man, thank God for his grace, right? We're self-serving creatures. Because the truth is, the only way out of either one of those things is the gospel. The only thing that our culture, it's ever going to satisfy our culture because eventually someone's acceptance of you is going to not do the trick that it used to. You notice that? There are people that used to affirm you and tell how much they loved you and accept you, but over time it loses its luster, doesn't it? Over time, like, no, I, I need someone else. I need something else to tell me that. Or you mess up in the way that you don't want to mess up and now who you are isn't acceptable, so now what do you do? You have to pretend and hide. But the gospel enables us to be actually who we are and be accepted so that God can change us. See, the gospel says that when you were the worst version of yourself, that's when Christ died, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us 
and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The version of you you hate most, the worst version than that is when Jesus died for you. The version of you that you beat yourself up for, that's when Christ died for you. Before you ever changed, before you ever attended a service, before you ever read your Bible, before you ever prayed a prayer, that's when Christ died. So here's what that means for us. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to put up a facade before God in order to be accepted and respected and blessed. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to, we want to feel strong and competent before God, and that's precisely the problem. How often do you pray things you don't even mean? God, to you be glory forever and ever in the Trinitarian ages from millennium to come. Do you mean any of that? Not really. Pretty anxious, stressed out, insecure. Why do you pray any of that stuff? Because we want to feel strong. We deep down still think, I got to really be good for him to accept me. That's the problem. You're pretending. Or maybe you don't even know where you're pretending. You need other people to tell you that. Where am I pretending? Where am I acting like I'm strong where I'm obviously not? The great thing about the gospel and that our culture needs and our people need and our city needs is to know you don't have to pretend before God. He accepts you because of Christ right where you are, no matter where you are. He's the only one not scared off by your sin. He's not scared off by it. But then he meets you where you are so that he can change you. So that he can change you. Romans 8, 29, we're almost done. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God accepts you based solely on the merit of Jesus precisely so that he can change you to look more like Jesus. He wants to conform everything about you and me to the image of his son. God is slowly working out of you and will one day work everything out of you that is contrary to Jesus. Everything. Every single facet. Even things about you you may like or our culture may praise or people may say you're great at, but if the word of God says I don't value it, that's not what Jesus is like, then he's gonna work that out of you. He doesn't instruct you or correct you or rebuke you or train you so that one day you will be his. He does it precisely because you already are his. That's why he does it. But can I tell you, if you haven't experienced the greatness of Jesus and his gospel and his forgiveness and acceptance of you in a while, when he goes to change you, it'll feel like torture. If you haven't The Spirit hasn't given you eyes to see in quite a while or ever to see, I can't believe he loves me and forgives me and he's as kind as he says he is. If you haven't experienced that in a while, when he goes to change you, it'll feel like he doesn't love you. Because he's changing you into Jesus and if you haven't seen Jesus as great, then it doesn't make sense to want to be changed into his image. But when you see, oh, I'm telling you, when you see the gospel for what it is. When you see that he could die for someone like you, it blows your mind. I was talking to a guy last week after the services, and he has been through, he's new to the stone, he's been through, last two years of his life have been just terrible. He's sinned a ton, he's been sinned against a ton, and he is just walking in here wounded. 
and I was talking to him, and he was telling me, like, well, like, what do I need to do? Like, I, I got to do something, right? And I was telling him the gospel. I was like, dude, you can't do anything. I go, it feels really easy, doesn't it? He's like, it feels too easy. I said, it wasn't, well, it's easy for you. It wasn't easy for Jesus. He's the one that suffered for it. And I told him this gospel, and can I tell you, I was so convicted by him because he, his mind was being blown by the gospel. He's like, Tyler, say that again. I have to write that down. I was, That's a good counseling session. I like this. Write that down, what I just said, right? <laughs> he, he was blown away, and, I, and he, thought, he thought I was counseling him, but his response to the gospel was counseling me. I was like, I was thinking, when's the last time my mind was blown by the fact that Jesus gave himself for me? And I was like, it's been a while. I say it a lot. I preach it a lot. And I began to see, it's been a long time since my heart exploded in my chest with the thought, he gave himself for me? I don't have to do anything? It's been a, it had been a while. And that's what I began to think is I don't want to grow dull towards the gospel. That guy gave me the best gift he could, being amazed by the grace of God in Christ. That before he ever changed, Jesus met him where he was. And so when I told him, here's what God wants to do in your life, he said, that makes all the sense in the world. What do I need to do? Because he thought, I want to be made like him. That's the essence of Christianity. Jesus meeting you where you are, right where you are, wherever you are, and then making you more like him. That's what it's about. This gospel saves you from pretending and it saves you from sinning so you can be accepted and loved by God forever. Jesus accepts you in ways no one else can so that he can change you in ways no one else could. He accepts you in ways and where you are no one else can, no one else would so that he can change you in ways no one else could. That's this gospel. That's the good news that we have to cherish forever. This doesn't grow dull, only our hearts do. And so may God make us a people who give Jesus, in light of his gospel, all the worship he deserves, both in the city and in the nations and for all time. Let's pray together. Father, in light of your greatness, we have to confess as a people how dull we get to you. God, we have to confess that your good news over time, because of our calloused hearts, loses its luster, loses its, its incredible nature to us, and becomes ordinary and mundane, and God, forgive us from that. Forgive us for that. Forgive us that we look at Jesus and we ever are apathetic. But God, I'm thankful that even when we're dull towards you, you are not dull towards us. That Jesus, your life was so perfect and so pure that when you gave it up, you made us just like you. That every human being was made to be known by you and through Christ God, we're able to. We're able to have those deep needs for acceptance, those deep needs for approval, those deep needs for respect, those deep needs to hear blessing over our lives. God, they're found in you. God, forgive us for going to other people, to jobs, to children, to circumstances, to churches, to do that. They can't. 
God, they crumble under the weight of our desires. And so God, don't let us leave here without being amazed by your gospel. God, don't let us move into the next stage of life without having our hearts in awe of your forgiveness, in awe of your love, in awe of your mercy for people like us. God, save us from pretending. Save us from continuing to sin and make us a people who come to you often and just confess and repent and say, God, help. You've always helped me, not because I've earned it, but because that's what you're like. And God, you'll be with us through thick and through thin. When cancer comes, when suffering comes, when the blessings run out and the acceptance from others runs away, Jesus, there you'll be smiling with a cup of fresh water saying, drink, I have infinite left for you. I'll never run out for you. And you'll see clearly one day how faithful I've been. So God, until that day, make us a people who bank everything on the gospel. Make us a people who don't give any other message to this city other than the good news of Jesus. Make us a people who work and strive not to be accepted, but because we are. God, would you refresh saints in here and call home lost sons and daughters in here and use us to tell that story until you take us home. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.